down. I want to say thank you to some of the people that have really helped. For those of you who are members of the Crossings Church that are still here, uh, who cooked the food, who served the food, who set up for registration, those are from Crossway. We had just a whole bunch of adults that have served the campus students this weekend and integrated in a way that allowed them to do their jobs uh, as, and, and enjoy the weekend at the same time. So thank you for all of you for, for working hard. And for uh, all of our speakers that have been here, we really have appreciated you a lot, and it's been great. I don't know if Daniel is still here or not, but to the perspectives, is Daniel, if you're here, wave. If not, I'll say something bad about you. No. Uh, but just the perspective that, that they bring with, with Ronnie, obviously, with uh, the wisdom and the love for Christ that he has, and uh, with Chris Buxton yesterday, we're really grateful for those that came in and spoke. For IT, where's IT at? Let's give IT a... I think IT uh, added a dimension that, was, that, we, that we've never had consistently. And for me, I know uh, every time before the keynote, I was looking for the keynote, but I got to admit, I was looking forward to IT going, dude, I can't wait to see what he's got today. And for all of you for choosing to be here this weekend and uh, choosing to commit your lives to Christ in a way that shows up this weekend and the way that you worship, the way you listen, and the way that you're going to serve him as you go home. We're on the final lesson, and as I was thinking about what, what do we do, and, and I was given or took the topic, I'm not sure which one it was, when we talk about the temporary and the eternal, because the culture clash in every way is about a focus on the temporary rather than the eternal. And so as I was trying to say, okay, what, what am I going to talk about? How can I help the students and our adults and our leaders as they leave to make sure that they embrace the idea that it doesn't matter what's going on in the temporary, in the short term. But what matters is I live my life for eternity. All of us, the Bible teach, are living on the short side of our existence, and there will be a long side. It's called eternity. But the problem is that Satan... Better? Better? That will be. They're going to fix me. All right. That's a big charge. You got a big job if you're going to fix me. But the problem with living for eternity is that before we get there, we live in the immediate. And in this world, there is a force that we will not encounter in eternity that is trying to make sure that while we, uh, that we may be people that look like good people, that we don't really live in a Christ-like way. And so the struggle is, even though we have all of this knowledge, the struggle is to maintain our commitment and our focus on forever whenever things seem so difficult sometimes at the moment. To focus our attention on the transcendent values that seem to be not valued at all at this particular time of our existence. So I was thinking, where do we go? And I was thinking about, again, with one of the things that Ashley said about, you know, we get this idea that the world's, you know, and I've heard this uh, for a long time, you know, every generation hears it, but the world's more messed up now than it's ever been. And in reality, that's not the truth. The Bible says that Jesus came in the fullness of time. I think that's actually a King James translation. But when he came in the fullness of times, another translation says he came at just the right moment. And he came about 2,000 years ago. And he came into a culture that was amazingly like ours. And it's really important to realize that. Divorce was rampant in that day. Abuse was rampant in that day. 
Factions and racism were rampant in that day. In the Roman Empire that Jesus lived, it's been estimated that up to 50% of the population participated in homosexual acts. And the Caesars, about 90% of them participated in those acts. So from the government down, it was a horrible time. And I'm convinced, and this is Robert's reason, all right, it's not scripture. I'm convinced that when the Bible says he came at just the right time, that God orchestrated the time when Jesus would come into the world, when the world would be as bad as it would ever get. Because he wanted his son to come in to redeem those at that moment, but he also wanted you and I to recognize the power of God when God's ways are lived out in the flesh to transform a world. And the church that existed in a time that was at the very least as bad as where we are, at a time whenever sin was at rampant and as blatant as now, burst upon the scene and transformed the culture in a way that could never have been anticipated if you looked at how the deck was stacked. One of those places where that happened was in a city named Corinth. And I did a series on Corinth about 10 or 15 years ago, and it was lessons from a whacked out church. It is a messed up church. But it's a church, as Paul writes to them, and I think that we have something that we can learn about how you make sure that you fight against the culture and you don't allow culture to take over, but you relentlessly focus on things that are eternal. So we're going to read through a passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And we're going to be talking about focused on forever, to where we're focused on it now and from this moment on, that, that the eternal grasp our focus. But in the verses that we're going to read through, I want to read them so that we have an understanding of what Paul is saying. Remember, he's writing to a church that has a great cultural struggle to where even sometimes the church itself has been so affected by it that Paul just goes, how in the world could you let this happen? But as we read through that, you're going to see that Paul is speaking to this church. He'll say on, on two or three occasions, he will say that we have. And that's where really my thought process came out whenever the scripture says we have. There's some things that I want us to look at. I've got eight things that we have out of this passage, even though Paul only says there's three things. I'm going to morph his words for you. Eight things that are important if we are going to focus on forever and not just right now. If we're going to be able to focus and endure and continue and persist in that focus rather than allowing it only to be a momentary thing where we go back for a week at our campus and we lose the focus again. So if you can pull up that passage of Scripture, we'll just read, I'll just read it out loud out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. The Bible says, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. So I already have, we have this minister, we don't lose heart if you see that emphasis. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by this setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, culture, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God, of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. 
But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-suppressing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may, be, may also be revealed in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken. And since we have the same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who was ra that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. All of this is for your benefit so that the grace is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away and yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what's seen, but on what is unseen. And here's why, since what is seen is temporary, but what is seen is eternal. Now again, he says we have this in several places in the passage. And he's talking specifically about the apostles, but he also then engulfs the Corinthian church to where they are to share in this with them. But there's only, way, there's only one way that, that you can have a we doing anything, right? And the way that you get to as a we is whenever I and you start doing things and start seeing things, and we start uniting together. And some of the problem is that we want a we impact in the church. We want to have a church that's powerful and look what we do, but we never take individual responsibility. So I am not what God wants me to be, and yet somehow I'm still expecting we, the church, our campus ministry, our teen ministry, to be what God wants it to be. I want him to do incredible things through us, even though I am not really a part of us. And so we're just going to walk through the passage, and I want to give you things not that we need, but we do need them. But I want to give you eight things that I, that you and I have, that if we can say, yes, I have this, if I can embrace the reality that I have this, that it can make our campus ministries and the development of our churches happen in a way that will shock the world in the way that the first century church did. The very first thing, and again, we're going to morph his speaking. Number one, I have a motivation. We have a motivation, but again, it starts with me. Paul begins by saying, therefore, since we, through God's mercy, and he starts off with this idea as Paul is doing all these things, and Paul is just crazy busy. He's like a hyperactive driven guy. You know, and Paul... When it comes to his hyper, hyperactivity, I can relate to him being all over the place. I don't relate to his faithfulness and his discipline and his, his ability to, to study and know things. But he is a guy that when you look at him, it's like, man, he never lets up. He is relentless. He is constantly doing what God calls him to do, and it doesn't matter where he is. And you will find out that as he starts off, that the motivation that Paul had was not a motivation that had anything to do with the culture that he lived in, but instead the Christ that lived in him. And he always seemed to recognize 
that the motivation that was constant would be an understanding of God's grace and God's mercy. And if we're going to counter culture on a number of levels, we have to be able to be driven by the mercy and the grace of God. First of all, we need to recognize that whenever we're working with people, that it is easy when you're working with people that broken, when you're reaching in a culture that despises your values and your savior, it is so easy to become mean-spirited. And in our meanness, we forget that where they are is where we were. There's a passage of scripture that 40 years ago when I first got in ministry, man, it was like my life ministry verse and I lived it out and have tried to live it out for 40 years to where Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, he said, Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many faithful witnesses and trust to other reliable men who be able to teach others also. It's a discipling verse it's a, a concise version of how Jesus changed the world then and how he changed it now. That the Timothys, the leaders within God's kingdom, find somebody else who is reliable, who's faithful, and we share with them. And now you have two teachers that go out and find two more, and it's a multiplication. And if this stuff is passed on, campus ministries honestly would explode again. We have a problem sometimes with the faithful teachers, and sometimes we have a problem with the lack of faithful, reliable followers. But man, I'm telling you, that verse was just a life verse for me, and there was a period of time, some of the guys that are here that are a little bit older, you can remember, can you, that buzz time, whenever 2 Timothy 2.2, the master plan of evangelism, disciples are made not born, it was just discipling, the multiplying ministry, we were talking about that earlier, it was just emblazed on our hearts. And if you would have asked the majority of people that were really evangelistic and tried to build a church back then, what 2 Timothy 2.2 2 say, they would know instantly. But if you were to ask them what 2 Timothy 2.1 said, they might miss it. Because 2 Timothy 2.1 says, Then, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. That I've, if I'm going to be able to effectively transfer what I am learning to others if i'm going to help to build faithfulness and a loyalty to god that is going to require an understanding of god's grace in my life and it makes no sense for some of us to come out of the kingdom from where we came to come out of i mean out of darkness from into the kingdom from where we came it makes no sense for some of us who sit here and sing his praises to forget that we were the very ones that we would have despised if we met us today. If I'd have met me then, I wouldn't have had anything to do with me because I would have been frustrated completely. I wouldn't have went to church with any, I wouldn't have went to church anywhere that would have let me go. You know what I mean? Like I ain't going, no, nah, you guys, if you have that kind of person there, I'm not coming there. But the truth is we're recipients of God's grace and God's mercy. And all of a sudden, and so much of the crud that we live with is that somehow we're trying to defend and we're trying to build up to where somehow our salvation was merited and we have a right and we, have, and we claim all these things rather than just going, I am saved by the grace of God because of his incredible mercy and without it, I wouldn't have a shot. And if I wouldn't have had a shot without it, and quite frankly, we need to get a grip on the reality of that. If I wouldn't have a shot without it, neither would they. But if because of God's mercy, 
I do have a shot at this incredible life, then I need to start recognizing it's not because I'm good, it's because he's gracious. And I need to begin to see people and what's going on within me through the, through the lens of the transforming mercy and grace of Christ so that rather than confronting the world with the truth in a condescending or arrogant way, I can present it in humility and grace and offer to them what was offered to me. And so as we go back onto our campuses, we have got to transform the culture that we just came out of. So let's not forget that. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 said this, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. You ever wonder how a man like Paul who when he was a Jew was such a zealot, so faithful, so obedient, could become a Christian and work with people that were so unfaithful to God. Well, he answers the question, why? Because it didn't matter to Paul what sin you struggled with, he recognized that his sin was as bad as theirs it allowed him to function in a way that, that, that he would both be humble and hopeful. Humble in his presentation and hopeful that anybody out there could be transformed and be changed. If my ministry, if our ministry here does anything for you guys, I hope it's a testimony to the fact of the goodness and the gracious nature of God because if it were not for him, none of this would happen. And anybody that knows me from my previous life is shocked that God is doing something with me today because they recognize what I did, that I was messed up and broken. I want to focus on eternity. I don't want to get caught up in the temporary. And if I'm going to do that consistently, then I've got to have a motivation to do that. And the motivation is the grace of God in 2 Corinthians chapter 5.14, Paul said, for Christ's love compels me. Because we're convinced that one died for all, therefore all of us died. He said, you want to know what pushes me on? You want know what brings my consistency? It is Christ's love for me. He doesn't say my love for Christ. That's not, that's not the tenor of that verse. Your love for Christ is fickle. And if you base your obedience and your faith based upon your love for Christ, there'll be times you'll be just like a roller coaster. But his is consistent. So here's the thing, we have to have a motivation. I want to encourage you all to get grounded in the grace and mercy of God in knowing, coming to grips with how messed up you were, how messed up you are, but how much God loved you in spite of that. And it will push you towards him. So first of all, and you, can, you need to check off on this, so you can answer the question, these, I'm saying I have these, I hope you'll go, do I? Yes, I do. Do you have a motivation grounded in the mercy and grace of Jesus? Secondly, I have a ministry. He says, well, for since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we don't lose heart. Paul recognized that in God's grace, not only did he save him, but he sanctified him. That both were acts of grace. It wasn't simply the forgiveness of sins, but it was the giving of a life to him that had purpose and significance. 
And you all need to know that when you go out, as we talk about this counterculture and this cancel culture and with the way that they are aggressively pursuing a battle with the principles of Jesus, it is easy to see us as warriors rather than servants. And while there's pictures that we are in a battle, there's a constant picture of those of us who are left on earth that we are servants of the king and we're servants of the people that we're around. You have been given a ministry. Your goal is not to win the battle with culture. It's to win those who have lost the battle to culture. It's to bring wholeness back in the lives of people that were just like you, if not for the grace of God in your life, would have a future that was as dark and dim and broken as yours is. And there's something incredibly liberating about God taking us if we're broken. Then when he puts us together, he doesn't set us on a shelf and say, there's my collection of former broken things. If you'll notice closely, you'll see the cracks because when I glue them together, they were so messed up, chips were missing, but I keep a dis... That's not what... We're not here to be set on a shelf. We're here to be set apart for the work of the kingdom. And whether you realize it or not, a person who is driven by the grace of God and gratitude for his mercy, you are the most valuable commodity on any campus. I don't care what the degrees around you. I don't care about the intellects around you. I don't care about the giftedness around you. The most incredible quantity on any campus is the salt that Jesus Christ has made you to be. In the ministry that you have, you matter. You matter now and you matter forever. So you humbly go out and serve knowing I am a humble servant of the almighty king and what I am doing, he's let me on something. These people don't get it in this culture. But I am here because of his love for me. And because of his love for me, I'm going to love and serve them. I have a ministry. You have a campus ministry. That's we. You are a minister on a campus. That's I. And if I get this right, and you get this right, all of a sudden we have the power that we can bring to this. I have a motivation. I have a ministry. Thirdly, I have an obligation. You see, the Old Testament nation of Israel thought that blessing from God, blessing plus blessing, equals blessing. It's an equation in our minor prophets thing that I did five or six away weeks ago. The problem is that's not the math that God used. God's math is blessing plus blessing equals obligation. That because of my goodness in your life, now you are obligated and hopefully compelled by my love, but I want you to represent me in a way that I call you to, not the way that you want to. And a lot of our problem on our campus is either we get in conflict with culture and we are obnoxious and unchristlike, or we are silent in non-Christlike. And those are both things that we're obligated to avoid. Here's what Paul says, rather than losing heart. He says, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We don't use deception, nor we distort the word of God. On the contrary, setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Now, what he's saying is there are some things that we just will not do because we have a ministry from the mercy of God. 
And because he has entrusted me, there's there's some things that I won't do. We will not use deception. We will not be dishonest. We will not be hypocritical. We will not be two-faced. And quite frankly, if we just get that part of the verse down, all of a sudden our churches would come alive and our influence would be multiplied. But he's saying there's this commitment to integrity. And then he goes from saying we don't use those things. He says we do not distort the word of God. We're not going to lie. We're not going to be hypocritical. We're not going to bow and distort the truth to somehow be accepted by the culture. We are obligated not to do that, but he says what we are obligated to do is to set forth the truth plainly. And in that picture to where we refuse to be dishonest and deceptive and we choose to be honest and integrity, he says, therefore we commend ourselves to you in the sight of everybody. What he's saying is, here's the force, here's what we can say. You can listen to us because we are obligated to not do what God doesn't want us to do. And we are obligated to do what God wants us to do. And we've done it consistently. So on our campuses, there's things that we can't do. We can't be obnoxious. We can't be ugly. We can't be mean-spirited. We can't be hypocritical. There's some things that we're obligated to be. We have to be loving, which means speaking the truth, even in the face of difficulty. And when we get those two things together, we have impact. Remember what the Apostle Paul said, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them and you'll save yourself in your hearers. There is an ability that when you persevere that you become someone who is self-commending in a good way. If you ever go for a job interview and you go, hey, Ronnie, I've got your, my name on, your name on my list. Can, can I use you for a reference? Will you recommend me? By the way, always ask before you do that, okay? Every now and then I get a call saying, and yeah, John says that, you, that he knows you. Uh, what do you think about John? There's a lot of static on the line here. Sorry, I can't hear. I don't want to diss John, you know what I'm saying? Because, but when you, when you have this reference, this recommendation from somebody, it carries weight. Paul says, in the light of what God teaches, whenever you, whenever a disciple is someone who's consistent in their lifestyle and what they do and what they don't do, and they are, when they're refusing error, they're embracing truth, that that's a recommendation in its own right. That the obligation, when fulfilled, to be faithful in word and in deed brings the opportunity to be fruitful. And so often we want to proclaim the word, but we don't want to live it. Or we want to try to live the word and we're going to be silent as if faith comes from seeing. It's one of the great false doctrines in Scripture. Faith never, the Bible never said faith comes from seeing. The Bible says faith comes from hearing. But so often our problem with people hearing us is they can't hear what we're saying because of seeing what we're doing. So we have an obligation. We don't toy with this ministry. We don't mess around with it. And if you read some of the scriptures where the Bible talks about somebody who's redeemed and they don't take it seriously or they're redeemed and they pull other baby believers down, it is like the hottest corner of hell is reserved for those who aren't concerned with their obligation to God. It's a destructive force. So I have a motivation, I have a ministry, I have an obligation. Number four, I have 
facts to face. And the facts I have to face is, it's going to be tough and people aren't going to like me. It'd be hard to do these things if everything was perfect, but now he goes, that's not the way it is. He says, our gospel is veiled. It's veiled to those who are perishing. What he says is, there are some people that no matter how good, no matter how well you live, how consistently you teach, they're not going to be interested. And you can't do anything about that. But what Paul says is, don't even worry about those that no matter how they kill Jesus, don't worry about the people who won't believe no matter what. Concentrate on the people who would believe if you were what you needed to be. There's a sense of obligation, but there's this fact you have to face that even when you're faithful, not everybody is going to listen. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded their, the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Then in verse 8, he says, we're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down and not destroyed. How many of you have went back to a campus after a seminar and you started reaching out to people, man, people started coming and you had Bible study after Bible study and every one of them flamed out and never became a disciple? I remember years ago, my wife had seven Bible studies in a row to where they said no to Jesus. And this is not just a study. This was an investment of love and life. And she was frustrated. You go, man, what do I do? And the answer is, you have some facts to face. That the obligation to share the word of God and live in a right way has nothing to do with how people are going to respond to you. And it has everything to do with the grace of God that gave you a ministry. And if the end... All you hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. Then you need to know you've been a good and faithful servant. But sometimes, rather than being rewarded by the grace of God and motivated by the grace of God, we get mixed up, and our motivation comes the, becomes, rather than the rewards of God, it becomes the response of people. Now, I believe we ought to be excited when people become Christians. I mean, that's a joy I can't tell you when I get to see, you know, some of the people I'm just, you know just watching around this building, and I get to see some of the people that are Christians that would, with Darren back there, man, I'm seeing him holding his little old baby back there. You know, it's, have you saw his baby? It's so cute, it makes you wonder who the father is. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I'm like, Katie, you need to confess anything here because that baby is cute. But I watch him with this joy, and I'm so proud of the man that he's become. And I watch Katie, I watch him serve in the ministry. I'm going, there is nothing th that, honestly, it's one of the things that makes it worthwhile. Every now and then I'll tell one of our girls or one of the guys here, I'll say, you know, you're one of the reasons that, I, quite frankly, it, you make it worth it. What do you mean? Well, a lot of people walk away, and it hurts when they walk away but you're here and you're faithful and you're beautiful and you're representing Jesus in a way that's just amazing and it just makes this so easy to do. But here are the facts. It isn't always gonna be like that. And if you expect it all to be like that, it will never be like that because you'll quit. So we have to go back with the determination to understand that we're not going to transform culture through a sermon or through a mass movement of people but maybe through a mass of people moving the way Jesus would, even when it's difficult. 
will see people saved and become a part of a different culture. You just have to face the facts. Number five, in the middle of all this, I have what it takes. Paul says, for we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants. It's, a, it's just a great line there. Your servants for Jesus' sake. Why is it important that we get the order right, that we are their servants for Jesus' sake? Because these people sometimes, like we've just said, are not going to treat us well. If it's about them, we're going to quit serving. But Jesus never mistreated us, so we keep serving even when they don't like what we say. Anyway, for what we preach is is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For Christ, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Now, just for a second, he's saying, guys, in all this trouble and this persecution, we're not perplexed, we're not giving up. You're going wide, and you're going, man, those are some disciplined, resolute men. No, that's not what he says. That's not why. He says this light that's emanating from us, even when it's difficult, that shines even when we're persecuted and even when we're perspect, it was put there by God when we accepted his grace. He then says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not for ourselves. He says, listen, you have, do you realize this? You have what it takes to make a difference on your campus. And that's not because you got it all together, but it's because of who lives within you and who transformed you. And you go, well, why didn't you just make everything easy? One of the things that can happen when we, in churches, if we're not careful, we will act like we have it all together. I can't tell you how many people that have walked into churches that I've been a part of, and they look at you all, and at the crossings, this is a major shock, but they'll look at you guys and go, I could never be like them because they got it all together. And I'm like, no, you can be like them. No, I'm pretty messed up. Well, you're getting close to like them then because you have to be really, really messed up to be a part of the crossings, okay? We're more alike than we could imagine. I want you to know you you have what it takes. God makes that promise to you. It, It doesn't matter who you are. You have the light within you. Understand. And there may be some things that somebody's better than you, but you can be the light of Jesus and you can help save someone now and forever. And he leaves you with some of your scars because he wants others to know that this isn't because you're so good, but it's because he's so good. And the apostle who writes this, it's like he uses the word that we would use for a terracotta. It's the cheapest pot you can buy. We have this, this incredible treasure, this incredible light source, this incredible power source inside of our bodies in these cheap, broken, cracked, fragile pots intentionally. Because he's not trying to draw attention to your pot, belly or otherwise, okay? He's trying to make sure that people know that what's great about you is the treasure that's within you, and it changes everything. Remember whenever Paul said that, here's a trustworthy statement, he said it to Timothy, a young guy he was training. He said, Timothy, here's a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of who I'm the worst. Now, whenever I grew up, I looked at Paul, and I would look at the apostle Peter, and one of them, quite frankly, I could relate to, and the other I couldn't. 
Man, I love the fact that Peter screwed up every time he turned around because that was the history of me. You know, like, hey, dude, if, you, if that screw-up can be a follower, an apostle, maybe there is hope for me. But I look at the Apostle Paul, and he goes through this list of things that he accomplished before he's a Christian. And that's nothing compared to the list that he has after he's a Christian, just on a human level. You go, I mean, he is faithful, he's fearless, he's, I'm, I'm doing everything that I want to be, and if not, he is. And somehow in the back of my mind, I got this idea that, man, God was lucky to have the Apostle Paul. Right? But he's kind of stuck with me. Because I'm no Apostle Paul. But then we read the next passage of Timothy, and it gives us context to the Jesus Christ came in the world to save sinners because he gives us the why. And he reveals that God did not save Paul and put him in that position because Paul was so good. He specifically saved him because Paul was so bad. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst, and he did this that through me. I might be an example of his unlimited patience to all who would believe. And all of a sudden, there's hope for me because I can be Paul. Because I have demanded God's unlimited patience. I have what it takes because it's not about me. And having the faith that he says to speak and to live that out is the challenge. But your doubts doesn't, doesn't change the reality that you have what it takes. And if you and your, we are the ministry of crackpots, right? But if we will go on our campuses and let that light shine, rather than people going, and I've had people say, Robert, it's cool for you, but I could never be like you. And I've had guests say that first time. I mean, you mean somebody who in all their life was in trouble, somebody that was sexually abused as a kid who was in trouble in every classroom he's ever been in, who was in the crisis behavioral disorders class, who almost went to jail, who had no confidence and wondered what was, and can go through a list of 20 things. You mean that's the me you could never be? And then I get to know that I am a different me now, but it's not because of me. It's because of the grace of God and his goodness, he gave me a ministry. And because he was gracious and wanting me to serve, I feel obligated to this man because he loved me and he cared for me. And so even when things get tough, I know that's just a part of what's going on. And even when things are tough, I have what it takes because he lives within me. And so do you. Jesus said in Matthew 28, we're going to skip over that on the slide. Jesus made a promise to be with us to the very end. And some of his end-time prophecies don't seem very promising. And it tells you that no matter how bad the prophecy about the times, the person of Jesus promised to be with you. And you'll get you through it. Christianity is not a way around problems. It's a way through them. For we come out better glorifying God. Number seven, not only do I have the promises of God, not only do I have the six, I'm sorry, not only do I have what it takes, I have the promise of God verified by the resurrection. Paul goes on to say, man, we've got this, 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 this ministry is here, and it's shining out of us to show the surpassing powers from God and not from us. It is written, I believe, therefore I speak. 
to the extent that you believe that it is God working in you and that God has transformed you, there is a correlation to how you'll be able to believe that he can change someone that seems unchangeable. Paul never struggled with somebody going, goodness, God, you know, that guy, if he's reached only by the grace of God. If anybody ever said that in Paul's company, I can hear Paul going, well, yeah, if he, he'd only be saved by the grace of God, but you and I, good thing we were saved by how good we are, right? Elbow, elbow. He goes, listen, this isn't just hype that you can do this. He says, it's written, therefore I speak, and since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak, because we know that the one who was raised from the dead, that raised Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us to himself. You know how sure you can be about the power of God and him being able to complete what he's beginning? Look at the resurrection. You have doubts about your power. That's cool. You ought to have doubts about your power. I know some of you guys, okay? Powerless on your own. Some of you girls, you are absolute powerless. You got your batteries in backwards. You're going to go the wrong place quick. Just being honest. Been there, done that. You ought to question your power. But he goes, you ever want to question the power of Jesus the power of God to work in your life, just look at the tomb on Friday and look at the tomb on Sunday. In Ephesians 1, he says, the same power that was exerted in resurrecting Christ from the dead is the power that is at work in you. So you have the promise of God verified by the resurrection. Number seven, I have limited time. I've got a motivation, I've got a ministry, I've got an obligation, I've got facts to face, I've got what it takes, I've got the promises of God, but I have limited time. Paul says in verses 15 and 16, therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Then he says in verse 17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us eternal glory that far outweighs them. Now, in both of those, the beginning statement and the last, he's going, your time is limited. He says, listen, outwardly, we're wasting away. It's kind of a bad thought, isn't it? You know, we're wasting away. I've had a great weekend this weekend for a number of reasons. I love getting to hear my kids speak and preach. I love getting to see them up here with their husbands or their wives. It's just a cool thing. Then I get to watch my grandkids up here, whether it would be Kennedy or Jackson or whoever it is is up here, Hattie on the weekend, I think. I love to hear Malachi talked about or Gabe or whoever it might be or Lincoln and just go, man, it's so cool to know that they're involved in kingdom work. Carrie went walking across the back, my son Carrie, and he was carrying his, grand, his, his granddaughter. Kennedy got married to Aaron. Aaron already had a daughter. I'm an instant great-grandfather. And she's walking across and she's got a smile and she's getting to experience those things. And it is so wonderful, but it lets me know that I am closer to the end than I am in the beginning. This time I've had with them, in all likelihood, will be much longer on this than the time that I have, than the time I've had with them, the time I will have with them. And sometimes we shy away from that, and I understand because it's emotional for me to think about that, but the book of Ecclesiastes says that, that, that there's more wisdom and learning to be found in funeral homes than at parties. Did you know that? That the wise spend their time in funeral homes, houses of mourning. The fools spend their times at banquet. There is something about the brevity of time that we need to know, and you need to know on your campus, you guys, before very long, you're going to be off the campus and you're going to be married. 
And the great likelihood is that how you behave on the campus is going to have much to do with the quality of your marriage afterwards. That your commitment as a disciple will help determine the rest of your future on the short-term marriage, family, kids. And it will have a lot to do with forever. And you don't have many years to form it the way you're forming it now, but also it's going to have a lot to do with people that you don't even know yet. And their life on this earth, their marriage, their families, what they're going to look like, their freedoms, and their eternity. You don't have time to play around. You will look back at your four years in college someday and go, man, it seems like just a day. It's gone so quickly. And you'll look back and you'll long for those days. But like Solomon, you look back and realize what is gone is gone. It can never be recaptured. But right now, you all need to go home with an urgency. Every one of you, every disciple of Jesus and realizing that you have a ministry but you do not have forever to carry out your ministry. And the most open time in the world for somebody to become a Christian is at the time that you're getting to interact with them on the campuses. Stop playing like you got forever. Someone said you can't waste time without damaging eternity. And I think they're right. We are... A mist, the Bible says, it's here for a while and then vanishes away. In Ephesians 6, Paul says, man, you need to make sure you make sure the, the, the most of every opportunity. And he does it for two reasons in Ephesians um, chapter 5. The first time, the first reason is because you don't have much time. When he says, make the most of every opportunity, there's an urgency because of the very nature of time. The second is, he says, make the most of every, every opportunity because the days are evil. When the days are evil... You have to recognize how important it is that you seize the moment even more when they're, than when they're not. You see, when we're, things are dark, we can get discouraged and we can give up. And Paul says, no, don't do that. Things are evil. You are especially needed right now. And all the things that we're talking about, the counterculture, that Ashley and RJ and others, there is a damage. God gave all of his commands in Deuteronomy 6, Paul's... Uh, God said to Moses, I'm giving you all these commandments for you today to obey for your own good. Anytime I break God's command, I damage, I hurt myself. And we're going to find people that are damaging themselves in ways that are unimaginable. And you have a ministry of salvation and reconciliation and hope. But you've got to seize the opportunity. Go back and aggressively reach out. Go back and lovingly reach out. And when they scorn you and when they persecute you, just chalk it up to the way that it is that some people's minds have been blinded by the evil one. But I promise you, some of your best friends you are yet to meet. And then finally, number eight. I have clarity of focus. What am I going to focus on in school? Paul says, so we fix our eyes on what, not what is, what is seen, but what's unseen, since what is seen is temporary, and what is seen is eternal. Gabe, can I borrow you for just a second up here? Can you? He wasn't asleep. He wasn't, but he was close. Okay, if you look at my fine young grandson, he is a prototypical seventh grader, correct? You're in seventh grade? Whatever, prototypical, you're going into seventh. Okay, you made it through sixth. Praise God, hallelujah, he made it through sixth. 
there are a lot of things about this boy that's like any other boy or girl. So if you want to, you can pretend that he's a girl too in the sense of the long flowing, but anyway. When you see this kid, there are things that you immediately may recognize. You may emphasize. He has a champion shirt on. That's a cool shirt, right? Champion, that means you're somebody. It's a name brand. It's not just some cheap Walmart t-shirt, right? You know, because the Walmart t-shirt shirts are cheap. Champion shirts are made of cotton, 100% cotton. And Walmart shirts are made of 100% cotton. We will spend a fortune on shirts sometimes, won't we, if they have the right name? And they're not going to last. What kind of shoes you got on there? Harding. Like... Harding University shoes? No, no, sorry. Huh? James Harding, that losing guy, again. But anyway, all right. Who's he play for now? Who, Memphis? Brooklyn. Oh, that's right. It wasn't for New York. I was just thinking. Yeah, really? Kind of. Okay. So, so you got Harding shoes, and, and how many pairs of shoes do you have? Well, if you were to guess, two, five. 10, 12, 12, okay. Do you have as many shoes as your brother? Not even close, okay, right? I don't know what kind of shorts these are. Those, what are those about? Nike, ho, 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 swoosh. Now, with this package here, and if you look at this wonderful, charming face, if there are anybody out there would apply for a granddaughter-in-law, then I'm taking applications for him, okay? <laughs> Honestly, here's the thing. Paul says, you know, you guys ought to emphasize what's eternal, and this is, our, this is our clarity of focus. How do I know what's eternal? If you can see it, it's not eternal. So it's going to last a flash. It's going to disappear and be gone as quick as a New York championship. I'm giving you. And we spend all of our time, and you girls, I could bring you up, we could talk about the, the, the makeup that you might wear, the hair products you use, and we are investing all this stuff. And you go, well, that's, that, it's just temporary. And quite frankly, so is this hair and his cute little nose, these wonderful ears, and this muscular body. <laughs> Give him a flex, okay? <laughs> it's all temporary. But what you can't see is that somebody, there's a, something in here that will live forever. You see, I don't care what kind of shirt he wears, what kind of shoes he has, what kind of shorts he wears. I don't care how tall he is or how short he is or how muscular. I don't care about that. Because none of that's going to get to go to heaven. It's all temporary. But what I do care about is that eternal part of the inside. Because in the short time I have left, I want to make sure that I have a long time with him later on. 
And there's this battle that Paul seems to recognize is that you cannot focus on the immediate without coming at the expense of the eternal. And for some of you, you go ahead and sit down. Thank my fine young assistant. My point is, guys, how much time do you spend and how much money do you spend on the things that I listed on him? Shoes, socks, shorts, shirt, product, makeup, working out, as opposed to how much time do you spend focusing on the only part of you that will live forever? And what Paul is saying for those of us in campus ministry, anything that does not invest in the eternal is a dumb investment. It's a short-term investment that will bankrupt you for eternity. So when you go back, that's why Paul would say, we don't ever, we don't ever look at anybody from a worldly point anymore because that's how we did Jesus. We thought, what a loser. Look where he's from. He doesn't even know who his daddy is. And we didn't understand what really mattered. He was eternal. And I want to challenge you guys to go to your schools and stop looking at labels and stop spending all your time on the things that draw it. But instead, you surrender yourself to Christ and to a decision to say, I'm going to focus on forever. And if you'll do that, someday we'll get back together. And you're going to show up, and you're going to have some people there with you that I don't even know who they are. You go, hey, this is my husband, or this is my wife, these are my kids, this has been my best friend. And you won't give a rip what they wore in college. You'll just be grateful for the eternity that God gave you because you didn't lose focus. The culture can go to hell in a handbasket. But as long as the culture of the kingdom is there living and faithfully teaching, emphasizing the eternal over the immediate, People are going to be saved, and God's will will be accomplished, and heaven will be populated, and we'll be blessed. So let me encourage y'all to go home, to have a great, have all the fun you can, and get anything, you know, there's nothing wrong with it, with using, Paul used the temporary to help people find the eternal, do the, have the greatest time you can, but never forget, there's only one party that lasts forever, and make sure you're living for that. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, I really thank you for everybody that's here this, this weekend. And Father, I pray that the words as we look at the passage of Scripture will resonate in our hearts. Father, I, I, there, I am not opposed, Father, to, to clothing and, to, and to, to makeup and to possessions. But Father, I pray that our possessions will never possess us. The Father will always understand that they are just tools, that we don't get our value from them, we get it from you, and we don't get our purpose from them, we get it from you, and we don't get our significance from them, we get them from you. And Father, that we'll always use as the filter on how much we are going to value something, the question we will ask, that my dad asked me whenever I'd go into the store whenever I was a little kid, he would ask, you want that toy? And he'd, I'd say, yeah, he goes, how long do you think that's gonna last? And he would try to persuade me not to invest in a 10-cent piece of junk that was going to last 10 seconds. Because he knew real value always had some a factor always involved was how long is it going to last. So, fathers, we go to our campuses and we begin to get caught up. So we begin to get, you know, get busy. Help us to ask as we do things, how long is this going to last? And help us invest 
in the unseen and the eternal, not the immediate things we can see. And I thank you for doing that in Jesus' name.